Welcome to Helsinki Open Waves. You are listening to Ferment Radio, a podcast series on bacterial and social fermentation. Fermentation can incite social action, spark creativity and bring surprising new tastes to our lives. My name is Agapo Krivka and I invite you to join us in a conversation on living interconnectivities. From macro to micro, from societal to cellular and from global to personal. There might be a much closer relationship between microbiology and shamanic practices than we think. As it is described by microbiologists and shamans, microbes and shamanic entities can be perceived under different circumstances. They have tiny but plural bodies and require specific substances to be nourished and sustained. They can be weakened or killed by a fever, they reproduce and act collectively. They live in bodies, soil, clouds, water and objects. They might affect the soil's fertility and the dynamics of the sea and rivers. They can inflict infectious and mental diseases, but they can also cure animals and plants. They can impact human behavior. Cesar Enrique Giraldo Herrera, a biologist, anthropologist and a PhD in social anthropology, wrote a book about this fascinating topic. It is called Microbes and Other Shamanic Beings, and it questions the colonial interpretations of Amerindian shamanism. Since you are an author of Microbes and Other Shamanic Beings, um, could you tell me more about the core concept of, the, of this book so everybody here, like me and our listeners, can kind of uh, have a general idea what is it about? And most of all, what was your journey towards it? Aga, thank you so much for the invitation. It's, it's really nice to meet you and, and it's really nice to, to be able to talk about, about the work. Um, okay, so microbes and other shamanic beings, I guess the, the big argument is that contemporary sciences were developed on top of translations of indigenous knowledge. That's the, the big argument and the specific case that that microbes and other shamanic beings is developing is that the notion of microbes is resembles many things of indigenous knowledge about the entities that have been classified as as shamanic spirits is the translation that appears most frequently in in the literature but what i'm arguing is that the the translation of of spirits is very problematic because it's a translation that is coming from missionaries and is coming with a, a very heavy load. And we, it was a translation that had a specific intention. Uh, so it's a, we'll, we can get into more detail about that. But the idea is that the notion of, of microbes was not a notion that was there before. And it has many elements in common with what shamans at the time were describing, whether they were shamans is also kind of, shamanism is also problematic, but not as much. Um, but these entities, in, in the early descriptions, they were called zemis. Um, these, these entities have several characteristics, and, and what the book is doing is one to trace uh, the early descriptions, so the descriptions that the missionaries make 
of these entities as they want to translate them into spirits. Uh, then it's examining means of perception of microbes that are the, at the disposal of shamans and that would allow them to, to understand this reality or to have an idea about these realities. And then it's, it's tracing a series of myths about syphilis, uh, which was a disease that uh, came across from, from the Americas and uh, has um, serious impacts, not, not just for, for the world society, because it was a pandemic uh, overall, but it, was, it had profound effects in how um, contagion was understood. So the first theory of contagion is produced right after, after contact by the person who makes the translation from this indigenous knowledge, who was Fracastoro, and he was uh, employing, he, he changes the word, so he uses zemina, and it's the first time that you have a description of a contagion by an entity that is alive on itself and that attacks the body. Before that, you have humoral theory, so it was a completely different medical theory. Uh, and Fracastor tries to articulate this, this new understanding uh, while keeping in line with the humoral theory. So he doesn't really believe, he doesn't really understand what, is the, what are the implications, but this was the first theory of contagion. And I would say that was a scaffold so uh, an ontological, uh, a way of understanding um, that was constructed on, on top of it, uh, Western science, European science built germ theory and on top of that uh, microbial theory. So you have, and then these, these notions get removed and get forgotten. So the, the, the book is, is tracing that, that history of, of exchange and transculturation. And well, the, the process, the journey to get to that, I guess, starts in the Pacific. Well, it can start in many places, but one of the, of the possible ones is the Pacific coast of Colombia. I was doing fieldwork there with Afro-Colombian and indigenous peoples. And um, frequently you would hear stories about what they call the visions. And the visions are these extremely dangerous entities that... Um, would appear um, in the mangroves or in at sea, and uh, they could they could make you drown or they could make you lost and, and mad and uh, drive you into into perdition basically. And I interpreted so my my first interpretation of of those entities was that they were describing. Uh, social and ecological relations in these in these environments and their dangers, and the problem with that interpretation was that it dismissed the reality that that these entities have for the people over there. So you and and the experience that is associated because these are things that you perceive. So sometimes I would say, well, I perceive this and and that, and they would tell me, well, that was the tunda. You just saw what was the tunda, and. If you say this is this is a, an interpretation of the environment, you are dismissing the reality of, of that thing. So that was the first step. And then the second step was that I was working then for my doctorate in the in the Shetlands in Scotland with troller fishers. 
And I was seeing many parallelisms in the things they would be doing and things that shamans would be doing ritualistically to, to cleanse food, for instance. The idea that you have to cleanse food and that there are processes. And in this context, this was explained as biosecurity. Uh, but if you would turn it into a shamanic context, this would be shamanism. And so one of the questions is, okay, what happens if, if we try um, this that appears to be very Western in an Amerindian context? Um, and that was a detour from my doctorate. Unfortunately, my, my supervisor went along and, and helped me out through, through, that, through that moment. And, and then after I concluded with the research, came, came Microbes and Other Shamanic Beings as a book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the interest itself, or even the idea uh, that shamanism, like Amer Indian shamanism, has has anything to do with microbiology, um, where 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 did it uh, come from? Is it something that because to be very honest, before. Reading your book, I had no idea about this notion. I never heard this concept. And um, yeah, I, I'm just curious, is, is there already any research existing on this topic or you were kind of, a, I don't know, walking the path for the first time? Okay, there have been some works uh, which are tracing, for instance, epidemiology, in indigenous communities and that trace also how the notions of microbiology are being translated back into indigenous culture. And that has, that has a problem and is that is assuming that there's nothing in common, that this is a Western idea that is being, uh, that is competing with the alternative, which is the indigenous idea. And I, I would say that that's really problematic because it's it's a it's a fight you can't win. It's the wrong it's the wrong dialectic. It's um, it's assuming that that you are competing. Is it as if I tried to put the response and the question, and then I said, well, the response was correct. Um, when, in fact, what you have is, is a process of translation that is longer. So there are works that are saying, okay, the, for example, the maraca is the equivalent of the microscope for the shaman. It's a tool. And in that, I agree. Uh, but the reasons behind it are slightly different. Um, I, I guess the, the passage for the, from, through the Shetlands was, was important because it was for instance, you have the maril, and the maril in the Shetlands is um, some some kind of lights that appear at sea, and the explanations for the explanation for those lights is is microbial, is uh, I think diatomias or something like that. Um, so you have a phenomenon which is being explained through microbiology, and which in the past has interpretations that were magical. And that's, that's something that helps the idea. But in other senses, it's, it's a novel. Yeah, it's a bit, yeah. I don't know whether it, it 
will end up working or not or how. Um, but there are more works works which are going in that direction. Um, there are microbiologists who are starting to, to take on the idea. Cliff Capono, for example, made his dissertation in Hawaii. Uh, Aviaya. There is a lot of people who's who's working on things that that are related. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, mm, could you describe for us a particular uh, practice, um, like a shamanic practice from from the region you 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 were you are kind of focusing on in your research? Um, which was totally misinterpreted from kind of a Western perspective um, in a way that, you know, it was interpreted as spirits or, or, or whatever else through like this, I don't know, Western or Christian lens. But actually it is, we are now able to kind of uh, use another language to describe it. Would it be, am I asking for something too complicated? Are we even able to talk about those things like, um, I don't know, like um, outside of the cultures which shaped us? Mm, I, I think we can trace the, okay, so if you talk, if you talk to a Hawonana shaman today, he'll tell you what, or he'll tell you what he's doing is a spiritual, uh, is a spiritual work. And and so the, the translation has some aspects which are easily encompassed. You are dealing with things that have to do with, with emotions, with thoughts, um, that, and you're dealing with entities that have intentionality, subjectivity. Um, so these are these are these are beings that that want things, and these are thing, beings that that desire being, things. And then you also have things in these translations that don't work that well. Um, so if you take uh, these these entities, are they have bodies? And if you take a, a very strict theological interpret- interpretation, spirits don't have bodies. Period. End of discussion. You are wrong. And what would happen when you have this is that the the friars would tell you, well, what you are describing are spirits, but you don't understand right what you're what you're talking about. So you got it wrong. So it's it's a it's a translation that betrays, but betrays in the wrong way, because you are not changing your way of of thinking. They have to change, so the what you are translating has to change the, their understanding. Um, or if you take the, these are entities that are closely related with animals, and plants, and soils, and bodies of water. So, or rocks. If you talk about transubstantiation, uh, if you talk about the passing the spirit for a Christian passing from a, a person to another person is difficult, is, is heretic, but passing to an animal that's, or to a rock that's just pretty much out. So 
in these interpretations, there were already things that, that didn't work. Um, I would say that, that we, we don't have just one frame of, of, of translation available. We are working simultaneously with many. And the, the trick is, is not to forget that if you take science, there are multiple sciences that might have a better grip than the one you're trying. So microbiology might work and it might not be sufficient. And perhaps what is more important is that if we are going to translate indigenous concepts, microbiology is going to have to change. So microbiology will have to betray itself and learn. And in this case, what, what is suggested is, okay, you should consider these entities as having intentionality and as having their own interests. And that is something that is much, much more difficult and is a big question for microbiologists. Can you do that? Um, which also poses a lot of, of different things, which are already in the, in the Amerindian concept. So if you talk about these entities, in many cases, they, are, they not only have one body, but have multitudinous bodies. And they permeate, and they are found in a specific parts of one body, or constitute a specific parts of, of that body. Um, they produce disease, but also mental diseases, madness. Um, so it's it encompasses, but is not enough. And also, what they are describing are a variety of entities. So that's also the reason is, is microbes and other shamanic beings, because it's microbes might, might be some of them, but it's not necessarily all. Um, so you have, you have cases in which what, the, what they are describing are entities that produce diseases. Uh, so you have, for example, for the Gunadule, you've got pony corticid. And ponycorticid produces malaria. Uh, but ponycorticid looks like an elephant, sort of. And it's very strange because we don't have elephants. So it's more the image of the elephant. So you see many processes of translation that happen there already. But perhaps the, the, the key element is that, yes, you can't reduce and be very strict. You have to be generous. And at the same time, you've got to be disciplined and try to follow, okay, are they describing also this? And if you find correspondences that go beyond the specific understanding, then you have something that I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just realized that I didn't ask like the core question, like when, when in this conversation we use the word shamanism or shaman, what do we actually mean by that? Okay, that's a toughie because there are many practices and part of many practices that are different and are not necessarily related um, or not completely related. So you have variations from, for example, groups that don't, where the shamans don't require any substance 
or require substances that are not necessarily hallucinogenic. So for the gunadule, for instance, is uh, cacao and, uh, and chili burn. These are not hallucinogenic and tobacco. These are not particularly hallucinogenic substances. In that case, it's more the, the shaman who's special and who has a special, um, a special way of being born and a special way of, of being raised. And that is the person, is a special person who, um, following a special education, can come to, to perceive these, these entities. Mm, you have other groups in which anybody can be a shaman. Uh, frequently, these are the ones that, that use stronger, stronger substances. Mm. Then you have some groups like the Wonana where they have divided the, the tasks. So in the case of the Wonana, you would have the Pildesera, who's a, who's a woman usually, who will be the seer. And she is the one who's who's seeing what is happening, who's seeing these these beings or persons, or and is the one who verifies that that the shaman, the person who's classified as, as a shaman, who can't see but can talk to these entities, can communicate with these entities. So they have the the Waunana have divided the tasks. You have the healer who will be chanting and, and talking continuously to these entities and who will have the, his, uh, his batons uh, with, with beings that have been transmitted by other shamans. And you will have the series who will be uh, checking that the shaman is employing them or checking that one shaman passes to the other, the beings, and is keeping the beings. Um, so... I guess there are many different practices. And one of the questions is, were these, were these practices part of a, of a general thing? Um, because they also present many, many similarities. Is also a way of, of understanding reality. So it's, and it's not necessarily circumscribed to the Americas, but it's found pretty much all over the Americas. Um, but you find it also in, in the circumpolar north. Um, you find it in Southeast Asia, in some parts of, of uh, South Asia, East. Uh, so it, it's pretty widely distributed. Um, frequently, it has to do with managing these, these entities that are pathogenic, are related with some animals or plants, or, or soils, um, but it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit difficult to define for that reason. The term itself is of Siberian origin, although, again, you have things that are very similar. So the Zeme in uh, is it has something in there, although that's, that's also something that appears to me is, is not widely distributed. Um, so, yeah, it's what is shamanism um, is, a, is a difficult question as well. But what I got from it is that it's basically about like the practice of connecting or 
yeah, somehow mm. relating to those entities. This is what I kind of uh, understood from all this. Of course, it's very problematic for so many reasons, but um, I think this is what I take from myself. I hope I didn't, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, reshape it too much in the translation. No, I think it's, it works. Okay. So if if it is about this relationship to those entities and what we said at the beginning that, uh, yeah, following uh, your research on on microbes and other shamanic beings. Um, in this way, uh, some of the those entities which shamans uh, are interacting with could be the microbes, right? Yeah. So how the, this interaction the... works, like how, 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 how this connection is possible? Uh... Okay, so you mean the, the perception part? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, well, there are several ways in which we relate with, with microbes constantly. Uh, the smell. Pretty much most smells that you are going to come across are of microbial origin. If you take your coffee, if you take your, your chocolate, if you have the the smell of your dearest one, all these things are, microbes are, are behind them. Um, so we are, we, and we can perceive with a high degree of, of detail. Our, if you think about it, our sense of smell is, is just wonderful for detecting the presence of, of microbes, their, their subproducts. is just much better than, than a spectrometer or you are going to get a much more detailed picture, much more precise than you would get with most chemical analysis. So that's a start. And that appears also in, in, in shamanic understandings. So the way they would describe some of these entities was because of the smell. If, they ha if it has a particular smell, it's, it might be there. Something that was very important for, or he, and is very important for many uh, many groups is vision and vision vision with detail so it's it's is a vision that is very rich and the the degree of of richness is representative of the capacity of the shaman so the capacity to describe in high detail or to depict in high detail what they are seeing is part of what gives shaman their uh, recognition by the community. Um, so that presented a, a huge problem. And that was something my, my supervisor kind of put forward pretty early. And it was, okay, you are making all these assumptions, but they can't see microbes, or can they? And that was a bit funny because in that moment, I just saw a, a small floater passing through by my eye, I don't know if you have ever seen floaters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know what you mean. Okay, so suddenly I'm, I'm talking with him and I'm seeing this floater and I remember that someone told me that that is a piece of detached retina. And wait a second, if it's a piece of detached retina, that's microscopic. So I told him, okay, just give me a couple weeks and I, I might have the response to that. But it was just a coincidence at the moment. 
So I, I went and I started looking up what is this story about detached retina, about, uh, and I ended up finding out um, about Purkinje's dissertation. Purkinje is one of these ultra-famous biologists of, uh, of the 18th, 19th century. Uh, he did, well, it turns out he did his dissertation about, about entoptics. And his dissertation was taking, making a lot of experiments with his eyes in order to see the structure of the eye. So the eye has, a, has kind of a, a wacky structure, which um, in biology is, is sort of the, the final joke because is, you have all the blood vessels and the blood vessels are all in the path of light between the, the outside and, and the, the photoreceptors of the retina. So it's like if you had a camera and all the cables were in front and not just they are in front, but they are just at the right dis distance that they will be visible because they could be close enough that you would not see them, but they are just far enough that you should be seeing them all the time. And so what happens is that the brain makes a huge effort to cleanse the image and to dampen the, the signal of those uh, of, of those areas, which is very difficult because you have things that are moving there. And anything that is moving through your field of vision calls the attention of the brain. So this is a, a mega task, which is very demanding. It takes a lot of, of uh, um, acuity of the eye. It takes a lot of information, things that you are not going to see, and puts a lot of things that are not there. But he managed to find some ways in which he could fool the eye. He also did some experiments with, uh, with uh, some hallucinogenics, but that's not to the main point. The, most of the experiments he's doing are experiments with light. And so with lights, he manages to map his, his retina, the blood vessels of his retina. Uh, he also describes and... and paint some, some very beautiful images of, of the whole tree, which now is called Purkinje tree, uh, and is in the eye. Um, and also he depicts some uh, white blood cells. So basically he was like giving, like uh, putting the light straight into this eye with various angles to see these blood vessels and so on. Oh, yeah. Wow. So basically any anybody could do that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much there. Those methods, many of them were refined by Helmholtz. So it works better, for instance, if you are working with a light that is vibrating. Um, and you can also see them in other circumstances. So, for instance, when you have uh, low levels of, of sugar, uh, low levels of oxygen, high levels of carbon dioxide, or when you have not only hallucinogenic drugs, but also antibiotics, um, then the system dampens down and you start seeing these things. And so one of the arguments that is going over there is, okay, perhaps there is already a mechanism in there to see what is happening inside your body, but which you turn off when you are not using it because it would be a nuisance most of the time. Um, 
So, yeah, Porkini was Porkini was very helpful, and I was playing with lights almost for two months. Um, so I was doing many of the experiments myself. Um, and then I was trying to estimate, okay, how much could you actually see? Because that's the other problem. Okay, you, you can see uh, white blood cells. That's already a good start because a white blood cell is uh, 6 to 15 microns, which is, is a big microbe. Not most, most microbes will be small, but, um, but then you don't want to go that far to, to make claims that, that are a bit too much. So, for instance, um, you have the author of the, the serpent... And he, he makes some claims about, about uh, how they can see DNA. And that's just problematic because DNA you can't see, even in the laboratory, if you, the strands and all that structure is, is a crystallized structure. That's not something that is out there. It's something that you produce. So that would be problematic. So, okay, the question was, how much can they see of the, of the microbial world? And... The, the conclusion is, okay, if, if we want a rough measure, um, then we can make some calculations because of the geometrical properties of this, of, this, uh, of this vision, of this form of vision, and uh, because of the size of the sensors. So a limit to what, how much they could see would be something like 5 microns. But yeah, 0.5 microns. Um, that would be the absolute most, and that's just because that's the size of the photoreceptors and the size of, of the shadows produced by, by things in the retina. So that would be kind of the least, but that's with null resolution. Uh, so that would be very, very small. Then if you think about... Um, if you think about... Frequently, you're not going to find a single, a single uh, microorganism, but you are going to find communities. Uh, and you have that uh, in some instances, uh, you can use these, these methods to trace uh, the progress of, uh, of diseases. So they are being used uh, by ophthalmologists at the time. Then you can say, okay, a community of microbes you could perceive that would be that would be easier so you have things that 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 you could do with perception and then the third question was okay now we can we can argue that as a person you might have visual access to the microbial world but then the question is whether shamans are are doing that um, and the way to to try that out was with with depictions, and in the, this case, um, it was a, a Colombian, an Ingano artist who's called Carlos Hakanamihoy. He's the son of a, of a very renowned shaman, uh, Florencio Hakanamihoy, and well, he became a, um, he became a painter. He became a plastic artist, and started. He had a very interesting process. Um, and he started depicting these very interesting images, which combine part of 
of the, the shamanic understandings, mm, but not in a... Usually when you have shamanic art, it's, it's very figurative, it's very symbolic and very loaded. And what he does is much more abstract. He's going towards depictions of the figures. And what I find when I analyze his paintings is that the paintings have the geometry that you would expect of this form of vision. Um, and that can be expanded to other, to other artists. You will find in other artists similar features, also frequently they will be enriched with, with, uh, with symbolic content uh, on, on top of the figure. So the argument was, okay, yes, from these, what you would get is what they are seeing, the way they are depicting it, coincides with, with uh, what would be anatoptic microscopy, which is the name of, of that. Mm -hmm. So basically, anybody of us can, can see those, can see the microbes, right? With training, you need to have good eyes to start with. Uh -huh. So they were right on that. If if your vision is not very good to start with, it's going to be more difficult. Um, so what is interesting is in their early story of, of microbiology, um, seeing in optics was a problem because people kept seeing them all the time. When you have... Um, I don't remember the name of of the light, uh, diffuminated light, it becomes very easy to see entoptics. And so people kept seeing things that were inside of their eyes and it was a whole process of training to unsee them. Mm. So, the yeah, you have to also be aware that, that you're training yourself not to see them. What would come out out of this interaction or a vision of, let's now say it, microbes or other shamanic beings? What would be the aim of this kind of practice? Um, of seeing? Yes, like uh, if, okay. if so some image one, appears, what kind of uh, yeah, what what kind of role the, does it have, or what kind of meaning? One of the of the things that is in there is that a, a factor in common in many of these of these traditions is that the shaman is permeable. The shaman is a is a person who is permeable to these these entities. is per, is penetrated by these entities more easily than other people. Um, so it inverts the, the whole idea of, of the Western medic. Uh, the Western medic is, is very detached from the patient. In this case, is a very close contact with the patient. And the way of seeing depends on um, either the shaman coming in contact and describing it for themselves or the, the patient describing it to the to the shaman, describing what is happening, the experiences that they are having. This is not going to be reduced. So this is this should be taken as a as a, a basis. The, the point in here is that behind the visions, not everything is imagination, 
but there is a reality that is being grasped. Then you have other things that are happening. You have, if you have visions with ayahuasca or with uh, what what you'll see is more than than entoptics. It's much more complex. It has many different things. But the, what was important for me at that point was to say, okay, there is in this seeing a reality, and we shouldn't discard it because what missionaries did very frequently was to say what shamans are doing is to get to get wasted. Um, they are just drunk cards and they just get drugged with these things and then they see the devil or they claim to see the devil. Um, so the important point was, no, there is a, a scene here. They are seeing their body from within, which when you think about it is a very powerful thing to say that you are able to see within your own body and that you can do um, or you can inform a diagnosis with things that are happening inside your body is a radically different statement to say that you got wasted or that your medic got wasted and you told him things and he did something. So that changes the, the, the value that we give to this information. In this case, there is extra information, there is extra knowledge that is being acquired through these practices. And there is a possibility of coming in contact with these beings because you are interacting with them, you are seeing them. Um, and that allows for a, a different um, approach, which is was also one of the of the key parts of, or and is one of the key parts of, of indigenous approaches to to reality. So, whereas if you take the the Judeo Christian faith is a faith. You have to believe in something. And you are not going to be able to see it, but you have to believe it. That went completely, and that still goes very much against the grain in, in indigenous societies. There's a, a quote from a, from a friar working in Antilles. Um, his name was Breton, and he was uh, working with the Kalinago. And what he said was, these people won't believe in anything that they cannot see or use. So what he was dealing was with, with staunch empiricists and utilitarians who would not give credit to, to a, an abstract idea of, of God. They have to see it. And for them, it doesn't make a difference whether you see it in, uh, in person or in dreams. It has the status of reality because you are seeing it. So it changes the, the status of, of things. Dreams are something that can be, that have a, a, a sense of reality because they are also independent from you. And you can also learn from them. Then the other aspect that is very important in, in many indigenous and very animistic contexts is that things might be, uh, might be persons. It's not that they are per se. It's not the assumption of, um, you, Aga, are a person. You might not be one. I'm not sure. But if we start talking and you start making questions to me and these, these questions are difficult, then I have to be more careful with you and I have to acknowledge your personhood. And it's the same. If you, if you are um, 
if you are paddling in a river and you're not paying attention to the river, then you might not realize that there are places in which the river might play with you. So the river might have a personhood and you have to take it into account. And if you interact with the river enough, you'll come to realize that the river has intentions, that it has its own ways of flowing, and that if you go against them, well, you might suffer the consequences. We could talk about this all indefinitely. There is so much to relearn here. Therefore, I warmly invite you to delve even deeper into microbiology, shamanism and decolonization and read the book of Cesar Enrique Giraldo Herrera, Microbes and Other Shamanic Beings. If you would like to know more about the show, listen to this episode again, or find previous episodes, please go to helsinkiopenwaves.com or fermentradio.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. I'm always looking forward to hearing from you at hello at fermentradio.com. Ferment Radio is broadcast by Helsinki Open Waves, supported by Culture of Cultures and produced by Super Eclectic. Thank you for listening, keep fermenting, and stay tuned for the next episode of Ferment Radio.